The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn to God's Word today, Acts chapter 8. We're going to stay with Acts here for this Sunday and then turn to other seasonal subjects uh, starting next week. Acts chapter 8, we pick up as we were looking at the death of Stephen, the first martyr, and uh, it, it actually picks right up. Uh, you almost think the verse division isn't, and of course these are not divinely inspired the way the verses are, but uh, it picks right up in the middle of things at Acts 8.1 with Saul having been there at that execution of Stephen. Listen as I read Acts 8. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to that which was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw signs that he did for unclean spirits. Crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and afterward being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent down to them Peter and John, who came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. 
Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's trustworthy, inspired word breathed out as truth to us. This time of year especially, I I have uh, some extra uh, frustration, maybe despair, over the Sunday newspaper. I pick it up from my driveway. I leave the house pretty early. I don't read it, but I get it. I glance at the headlines. I glance at a couple of things. Comics, believe it or not. I read the color comics before I come to church. But, uh, you know, I'm frustrated with this paper as I take it out of the plastic sleeve, and I'm I'm at the breakfast table, and I take the approximately 10 ounces worth of actual newsprint that I know I'm going to read, and then I drop in a pile the approximate 6 pounds of everything else, all the color slick stuff from every store you can imagine, trying to get me to indulge in some sale that's going on. I wish if there was a consumer survey, I'd tell them, leave it out of mine. I don't even look at it. I don't even read a single one of them. My wife does glance at them. But, you know, I know where I'm going to shop. I know they have a sale going on most of the time anyway. I don't really know what the point of the sale brochures are. I'm not too interested. And by the way, you know, if it ever happens that you are in the mall on Black Friday and you see me there, you will know the world is about to end (laughs) because that will be the sign. I can guarantee you. Well, the buy of a lifetime that really captures and holds my interest is the great gift of God that never goes on sale. It's never at a discount because it's already absolutely free. Conversion to Jesus Christ brings to people a new birth, bestows a whole new life that only God can give by His sovereign grace and the power of His Spirit working in us. We come alive to trust Christ and we're new people, forgiven people. People with eternity in our hearts guaranteed to us as our final destination. There's no substitute for this. You can't buy it on the cheap. You can't bargain for it. You can't barter with God and say, I've got a good life to trade you for that gift. The gift is free. And it's God's gift. And when you have it, you know it to be the most wonderful thing a person could possess. Well, Here we are in Acts chapter 8 where God's Spirit is still bringing new birth and doing this miracle work in many people even as the church now is seeing persecution bear down on them really hard. It seems like the killing of Stephen unleashed something. Saul of Tarsus was one of the leaders at least who's obviously Luke points him out because of his importance later in chapter 9 and and I won't get to this Lord willing until probably January, early January, the conversion of Saul into Paul. 
But it's obvious why he's pointed out in this role right now, because he's going to become the great apostle. But he's no apostle now. He hates Christians. We read in 8.1, there arose this great persecution. And in all these regions, in verse 4, those who were scattered went out, but they were being pushed out. As Saul and others came after them to arrest them, uh, there were some even killed, although I don't No, we don't really know exactly how many were being killed because that was still a bold step by the Jerusalem leaders to defy Rome and and actually kill people like that. But they were certainly arresting them. We read in verse 3, they were being committed to prison. Now we should link what's happening here in Acts 8.1 with the numbers flip-flop, Acts 1.8. If you recall, I told you that Acts 1.8 is the theme statement of the book of Acts. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So far, we've gone along here to chapter 8, and the church is still in Jerusalem. They're still in the bullseye of that circle that Jesus was talking about. They haven't even moved to the next ring, Samaria. How do they move to that next ring? By sitting down and having a missions planning committee and saying, you know, it's time to start doing what Jesus said and go to Samaria and the other... No. They went to the next ring of witness when persecution drove them out. And people had to literally flee maybe for their lives or to escape prison. And they went out, ordinary men and women. It says the apostles didn't go at first. They were still in Jerusalem at this time. But especially the Gentile Christians, the Greek Christians were pushed out, and they preached Christ as they went. And so the plan of God was already being fulfilled by persecution. Vengeful Saul of Tarsus, the the instrument of Satan, you could say here, was also the instrument of God. Later, as Paul, he writes in Galatians 1.13 what he had been doing as Saul of Tarsus, and he says there, I persecuted the church of God violently, I tried to destroy it. Paul did more to build the church and spread the church than he did destroy it by sending Christians out with a witness of the Lord to other places. The church kept multiplying. I, I always think of it as, as, uh, as if these Christians as a whole group were like big bags of a farmer's seed grain, you know, and I don't know a lot about farming, but I know you've got to save seed after the harvest or buy seed for next year's crop. And it's as if here was Saul saying, look at these, these bags of Christians. I'm going to rip these bags open and scatter them. Well, he did exactly that, and in scattering it, what was he doing? The hand of the persecutor was the hand of a sower of a whole new crop. As Christians went, they couldn't help but tell about the new lives that they had through Jesus Christ, and the grain was being sown in the ground. Jesus had said something like that in John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears fruit. Now, these people weren't all dying, but in a sense, their old lives were dying. Their old settled neighborhoods were being stripped from them, and they were being pushed out into uncomfortable places. But as they went, they told of Christ, and the church grew. It makes me think of the wonderful thing that happened in modern times in the 20th century in China. The former senior pastor of this church, Robert Williamson, who many of you remember, 
uh, Robert and, and Beulah Williamson were planning before, long before they ever came here to this church to be missionaries in China. That was their aim, their goal as, as young adults. And they thought they were going. I believe they were even in some training in that direction. And then came 1949 when Mao Zedong and the communists closed down China and said, foreigners, get out. The China Inland Mission alone, which became Overseas Missionary Fellowship, had 637 missionaries pushed out, people who had already established good places of witness and and churches and compounds where the gospel and schools, where Christian truth was going into China. They were pushed out and no more missionaries allowed in. Throughout all the years of my childhood and teen years, the 50s, the 60s, into the 70s, people wondered largely, what has happened to Christianity? There are no more missionaries there. What has happened in China? And it gradually began in the late 60s and into the 70s to leak out as information came to light why the church had multiplied 50 times over. The Christians who had been left, the Chinese people, were evangelizing their own. And Christianity grew under communist harshness as pastors were jailed. Christianity grew. Persecution always tends to feed the proclamation of the gospel. And we've seen it time after time. Well, here we learn of Philip, one of, the, one of these deacons, gifted deacons like uh, Stephen, who also was a preacher. And he, for whatever reason, went north into Samaria Now, you have to know, and I just tell you for a minute, remember something about Samaria? You know, the the people of Israel had been divided many, many centuries before. The remnants of ten tribes were in the north, and these were people who had been taken captive into Assyria, allowed to come back, intermarried with the Assyrians, and they were sort of half-caste Jews there in Samaria And down in Jerusalem and Judea, you had the couple tribes that had been more pure, more faithful. And they despised the Samaritans. Even though they were common descendants of of Abraham and, and earlier people of Israel, they hated each other. And Jews would go out of their way from from Jerusalem area, not even to go through Samaria. If they were traveling north, they'd go around not to be with these people. Well, here Philip was taking the gospel of Jesus to this ethnic, right through this ethnic and religious wall of division, and people in Samaria began to receive Christ. Miracles came. Demons were cast out. People were healed. And a 1,000-year-old religious barrier started to crumble. The God of providence had fulfilled Jesus' prediction. What was the prediction? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. The missionary movement was beginning, you see, with persecution, scattering the seeds of the gospel. Well, that's all sort of background. But now, secondly, I'd ask you to look at verses 9 through 17 of our text, Acts 8. And here we see the Samaritans actually taking hold with the gospel. And yet, what happens is a little strange and provokes some questions. It says there that many Samaritans believed and were baptized, and yet... It took a later arrival by Peter and John for it to be said that the Holy Spirit fully was manifested in Samaria. That seems odd. 
Now, there are people who will take this as some kind of a model and say, well, here we see what God does all the time or what should happen, and they say, this tells us that real Christian experience is two stages. You first believe and are baptized and become a believer, and then, hopefully, later in your life, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is poured in, and and for some at least, a more full experience of His gifts and His presence come, but maybe not for all. And so, you should think of salvation as two stages. Well, that is not the teaching of the mainstream of the New Testament. This is out of step or odd compared to the mainstream of teaching. The dominant New Testament model and teaching is that only the action of the Holy Spirit in the first place ever awakens someone to believe and say, Jesus is my Lord. 1 Corinthians 12.3, no man says, Jesus is Lord, the very first confession, except by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. The Holy Spirit is in some second stage addition. He's the power of God that awakens you in the first place and brings you to salvation and profession of faith. Ephesians 1.3 says to all believers that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit when we believed in Christ. Now, that's the mainstream of teaching. Now, certainly there are we can observe in the church and in church history and in individual lives that there are times in the Christian life when the Holy Spirit awakens us in a greater way. Or God brings revival in his church and stirs things up to greater power and greater blessing. Yes, indeed, there can be those experiences of the Spirit that are greater. But it certainly tells us the norm is that the Spirit brings new life in the first place. And without him, there is no new life. So what's going on here? In Samaria, we ask. People believed, but then later, the Holy Spirit descended. The best explanation I know how to give, and many have given, is that what God was doing here, because this was really a landmark time of the gospel crossing a barrier to a new people, was indeed quietly the Spirit had to have awakened these people if they truly believed, if they had saving faith. The Spirit had to bring that. But the gifts and the manifestations of the Spirit awaited the coming of the Jerusalem apostles because of the authority that they bore as the unique witnesses of Christ and his resurrection. And what that amounts to then is that it took the apostles to say, look, that which happened among us is the same thing that's happening here. It took their presence to confirm. It's as if the Spirit's more open demonstration there in Samaria was a confirming sign to simply say, this is the same thing. You know, these aren't suspect conversions. These are real conversions. But we don't take that as a norm that there's some kind of a two-stage step in conversion as a rule in the Christianity. Now, thirdly, we come and meet this, this unusual man, and he's my main focus here this morning. This man, Simon the Magician, I suppose he and his publicity agent figured out calling him Simon the Great, which comes out in Latin, Simon Magus. Greatness was the title he sought. Really almost blasphemous what is said of him in verse 10, this man is the power of God 
that is called great, that's blasphemous. And I'm sure he encouraged that to be said. He's a real man. He's mentioned outside of the New Testament. So we know this isn't someone that we just stumble on in Acts. And uh, here we find a man who did say, Jesus is my Lord. He submitted to baptism. And yet it fully appears here that his conversion was not genuine. Simon Magus proves this for us. The best gift of God never goes on sale. You know, we've already found out from Ananias and Sapphira that wherever there's true faith, there'll be counterfeits. My childhood pastor said to me once when I was later already a pastor, we were talking about ministry. We were, we were talking about some of the oddball people. Of course, nobody here, I'm, you know, this really, this conversation happened a long time ago. But he and I were talking about, well, you know, you meet a lot of odd people in churches, and, and yeah, there's some that are a little fringy and a little kooky. And, and my pastor said, wherever there is bright light, there will be bugs. I have used that as a guideline to keep my sanity through a lot of years. Wherever there's bright light, there will be bugs. Well, there were the Ananias and Sapphiras. There were the Simon Maguses who were attracted to the light of truth, but they really didn't prove to be genuine. We read here in verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. You say, well, either he believed or he didn't. But the interesting thing is there are other occasions in the New Testament where the word to believe can mean either true, regenerating, heart-changing faith and repentance or merely a superficial saying the words, you know. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Sure, doesn't everybody? It can simply mean profession, not possession of the Spirit of Christ. And that is what it seems to mean here. A man who somehow was drawn to this whole thing. Maybe he even fooled himself. Maybe he was even a little deluded and thought, well, all you have to do is, is say the words, you know, Jesus is Lord and that makes you a Christian. And he thought that was it. And actually, people like him are predicted by the parable of Jesus, the parable of the seed and sower. Jesus said, you've got one kind of seed, the true gospel, and a sower goes out and he throws it. And, you know, some of it lands in the plowed earth and it falls there and it grows and does well. Some of it lands on the stony path. Some of it lands in shallow ground where it springs up briefly and then dies. Now, this is a phenomenon in Christian conversion that we actually don't like to think much about. We always try to believe the best of people. If they say, Jesus is my Lord, we say, good, let's, let's talk about helping you become a disciple and learn what it is to be a Christian. And some people just don't seem to go anywhere from that profession onward. And that is Simon. He was deeply lacking in what we would call simple repentance. He loved himself. He loved his reputation. He still wanted to build that reputation above everything else so that he even was ready to say, how much does it cost to get this ability to do these wonderful things that you apostles are doing. We know he's a sham. This is no real conversion. Several ways. First, that the fact that his fascination with the sensational and his, his egotistical self-enhancement, it's me. 
that he's interested in, not Christ. Secondly, the very strong rebuke of Peter leaves us no doubt at all that this man was not what he said. Peter is, is almost vehement in the way he rejects this man. In fact, there's a, a paraphrase translation that I, I checked it out once because when I read it, I thought it was kind of shocking. And actually, it doesn't stray very far from the sense of the Greek text, although not the exact words. But this paraphrase of Peter's wording here says to Simon, to hell with your money and to hell with you. We don't even like to think Peter would talk like that. But he was saying, look, you don't even understand what this is unless you repent of this wickedness, this selfishness, this egotism, and understand that to be a new creature in Christ means surrendering your heart, your mind, your ego to him. You don't have the least part in this whole thing. Well, we want to ask, isn't there a happy ending? Did Simon ever repent? We had this little thing from him in verse 24, his feeble response. I think Peter scared him. And he said, oh my, well, I'm afraid of that. Oh, pray for me, Peter, that that won't ever happen to me. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I think it's more fakery. Why didn't the man pray for himself? Why didn't he fall on his face before God and say, oh God, I'm guilty of a great sin here in this foolish expectation? And as a matter of fact, we know from outside the Bible sources, a couple of early church fathers talk about Simon Magus, who was the opponent in a bitter spirit against Peter the rest of his days. I don't have a happy ending for Simon Magus. Instead, we have something like Hebrews 6.4 with a chilling word. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted, end of your tongue, you know, just taste the heavenly gift. If they fall away, it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance, for they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to disgrace. How useless is superficial Christianity? How useless is superficial church membership? You can fool elders. We're not all wise. You can come and say, me too, Jesus is Lord. And we wonder in five years or ten years, where's the growth? Where's the servanthood? Where's the Christian character? You can fool other people. You can fool a wife or a husband. You can profess, oh, yes, you know, you want to marry a a woman. He said, Oh, sure, you know, I'll, I'll be glad to join that church of yours. And she thinks, oh, good, he must be a Christian. Oh, boy, I've talked to the wives that found out five and ten years later the bitter truth of no reality in that life. Maybe there's somebody here that asks. They say, well, you're unsettling me here. Maybe I'm some kind of a fake. How would I know? Am I just a phony like Simon? I would suggest you ask yourself some questions. Do you hate your sins and understand they're offensive to God? Do you disown all claims to merit anything before the Lord God that he owes you something or that you can barter a good life with him? And and he'll say, oh, good. I'll, I'll gladly take that good life of yours in exchange for eternity. God's never said that to one soul. 
Have you sought the redemption of the gospel of Christ by saying what the hymn said? Nothing at all in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross of Christ I cling. Do you have a sincere desire to know Christ more and more and see him exalted? Do you love the word of God? Does it seem alive to you in the truth that it teaches? If you can say yes to several or most of those questions, I believe the only reason you can say yes is because the Holy Spirit is awakening you to a new life. And you may lack the kind of solid assurance you need, but be reassured. God's Spirit is the reason you can answer yes to those things because unregenerate people cannot answer yes. Folks, what Simon couldn't buy and what you can't barter with God for is God's free gift. Genuine conversion in the name of Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Let me remind you, the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the entire Bible is Genesis 1-3, where the Spirit of God was hovering over the unformed face of the creation's deep. God's Spirit makes new things. Men don't make anything new. We're just engineers and technicians. We take pre-existing things and reassemble them. God makes human beings new. He gives us new hearts, new minds, forgiven souls. He works real conversion as we come to hunger and thirst for the righteousness and the peace and the eternal life that can only be found in Christ. May you, each and every one, not rest unless you know that that has been true and and it's on the way to accomplishment in your life, that God the Spirit is at work in you, the gracious God who never puts his gift on sale will give you that gift when you come to him in the name of Jesus, in humble petition, in hunger and thirst, and ask him for it. Our Father, I thank you that we don't have to take the pile of colorful sale brochures and figure out what store will sell us salvation. Thank you, God, for the wonder of Christ. This time of year, we... We are amazed at him more than any other time, perhaps. Coming to us, your revelation of yourself in human form. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gift. I pray that gift would be opened and treasured and reveled in by many, many, even some perhaps for the first time today. In Jesus' name, amen. The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format.